Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. Today we'll be talking about legacy and vintage Belcher and food and drink from Chicago. So we're, we're starting off with the history of Belcher, so I think Nat's going to talk about that. I don't know if you guys are aware or not, but Nat Mose is kind of like a Belcher savant. He is and... the grand happy Belcher, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Oh, man. And, and Jeff Belcher Mose, savant is a lot to live up to. And Jeff Mose, relation to Nat Mose, casually takes years off playing Magic, picks up a Belcher list, and top eights a Star City with 15 island sideboard. What can I say? I have the luck and the skill to make it happen. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just here because I know both of them. You've played your fair share of Belcher. I have. I, I, I feel like I sort of stole Nat and Matt Hazard's fire because they spent a lot of time developing this deck, and then we went to Star City Columbus, and I'm just like, oh, I'm going to pick up the Belcher list and we'll see what happens. And instead of the two guys who spent all the time on the deck making top eight, I happened to luck sack into it and got my 15 minutes of fame for playing 15 islands in the sideboard. I mean, you only get so lucky, right? Like, <laughs> you have to know what the cards do for a little bit of it. You need to count to four, and then you need to be able to count to three. So seven total. Yes. But anyway, there's a lot you of history behind time. this. So, so Nat, you can tell us a little bit about how this came to be. Well, you know, the Belcher has actually been around for a long time. It was developed shortly after the release of Mirrodin, when Goblin Char Belcher the Card was released. Michael Simister, who actually lived in Cincinnati for a long time and used to game in Columbus, developed the deck with some of his friends and played it in Columbus before taking it to the 2004 Vintage World Championships, uh, where he made third place with it. The deck has changed a lot since then, and there's been several different versions that have all sort of developed concurrently. The big noticeable characteristic about it is that it plays very few lands. I think even in the original rulebook for Magic, they sort of give you the guideline that a third of your deck should be lands. When Sinister built his list, he had two lands. Just to clarify, uh, were... um, Sinister was building for Vintage, correct? Yeah, Sinister was building for Vintage, so he had all the power. And his lands were Bayou and Tropical Island, both of which he found using four land grants. And then after that, of course, he had the traditional broken vintage mana base of Moxes and Black Lotus, Lion's Eye Diamond, Mana Crypt, etc., etc. Also using the power of Channel, played all of the rituals, Dark Ritual, and <laughs> all of the rituals available to him then were Dark Ritual, he had two Cabal Rituals, and Tinderwall. That's sort of where it got started. And then, you know, obviously once Legacy became popular, things got ported over there. The Legacy lists we know now were pretty much a result of two spells that got printed in the 2006-2007 era when Cold Snap gave us Rite of Flame and then the next spring Simeon Spirit Guide was printed in Future Sight. The combination of those two cards, along with previous accelerants that were red and green, allowed you to build a deck that was very consistent because you cut it down to two colors. You got it down to red and green. The lists that I played in Vintage at that time are actually very similar to the, the Legacy lists that people play now. 
and the people played back then, where they use Goblin Charbelcher and Empty the Warrens to try and win on turn one. The ultimate goal of Charbelcher, the deck, is to be the fastest deck in the format. And that's that's what it's done. It's been uh, very good at that, and it's continually being tuned to that end. If you play against a Belter player, you know that you don't have a lot of time to set up. So Simeon Spirit Guide is from Planar Chaos, but I'm not sure that really matters. Oh, yeah, you're right. It does. Yeah, because it's the uh, the plane shifted or whatever they plane call it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So that's, I mean, that's pretty much where Belter comes from. It, it all comes from Vintage and then got ported over to Legacy fairly easily. And for a long time, the Vintage and Legacy lists look very similar with the Empty the Warrens, Goblin Char Belcher tag team and the, the Red Green Mana Base. So the article you wrote about Belcher in 2009 from The Drain... Uh-huh. Belching like a pro, your rules are awesome. Mulligan like you mean it. Take your time to do things right. Have no fear. Your opponent doesn't have force of will at hand. He isn't running Echoing Truth or Engineer's Explosives. <laughs> You've never heard of Pithing Needle. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, you will draw mana. Number five, forget failure. That's actually fairly important because if you aren't willing to just go for it, you don't get there. You have to realize that you're pretty much committed, and you need to do it. Yeah, that was actually a big problem of mine when I first started playing Belcher, was that I was not aggressive enough. And I would keep hands, like playing the vintage version, I would keep hands without Belcher or empty the Warrens in the opening hand, figuring that I'd be able to hold off my opponent by playing things like Goblin Welder and Pyroblast. And, you know, of course it doesn't work, because you don't really draw cards that well to get to the point where you can actually win after two or three turns, necessarily. You might not see a win condition ever. And that, that was a big thing. Actually, it was Mark Trogdon who you know used to ask me if I had the win in hand, and I would say, no. And he would say, well, you must! <laughs> and that's actually one of my big things when I, I play now, is that I have to think, can I win with this hand? Because I must. I have to win with this hand because it's really all I'm going to get. Rule number one, mulligan like you mean it. The surest way to win with this deck is to do something on turn one. If your opening hand doesn't contain Charbelcher, Empty the Warrens, Wheel of Fortune, Memory Jar, Tinker, or Twister, Mulligan. You can't count on Street Wraith to find you a win condition, so don't be tempted. Don't stop following this Mulligan rule until you hit four cards. I think that's still pretty accurate. I mean, I think the deck mulligans really well. I think it's kind of funny because in Legacy you have to know when you have enough cantrips that you feel like you can make it. When you were playing Legacy, like how many cantrips did you want to sway you to keep in hand that you would otherwise mulligan? So we're going to break the rules a little bit here. In talking to Nat, because the deck is so small, it's only 48 cards in Legacy, you can actually be a little bit more conservative about mulligans, because when you're playing against blue players, blue players in Legacy don't win immediately. You have some time to do your thing, and in those sort of fights, it can be important to have a lot of cards rather than the best cards through mulliganing. Because if you have to fight through some counter spells, you have to be prepared to eat some one-for-one trades. Also, I mean, when we started talking about this and, uh, you know, Trogdon and Nat were talking about that you have the win in your hand, uh, that was a 52-card deck because Cataxium Probe hadn't been printed yet. So I'm not sure if four more cantrips changes that or not. But, I don't I mean, think that they were playing Manamorphose either. Yeah, we didn't have Manamorphose or Gataxian Probe, and I probably wasn't playing Street Wraith in 
in a lot of those builds. I, you know, that was Street Wraith is a card that by itself comes and goes. I think the the big thing about playing against Blue, like Jeff said, is that you want to have more cards in hand so that you have cards that they can counter. Because <laughs> if you start with a five card hand and they counter two of them, you're really stuck with nothing. And if you have a seven card hand and they counter two of them, you might still have enough left to be able to put together a win. So especially if they counter something that's not critical. The winter 2008 list that you post in here has Street Wraith and Metamorphose, but it also has right. Guttural Response, which kind of takes away from your cantrips, right? It's a dead draw almost. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, that's got Guttural Response and Goblin Mother. That's a pretty defensive list. That made a couple of top eights, I think, around that time. It did pretty well for me. But like I said, the number of cantrips in the list has, has varied depending on how things go. I think things like guttural response and those types of cards are probably suited for later on when we talk about the difference between Legacy and Vintage Belcher because of the difference right. of how you have to fight the metagame. So Mirrodin was released in October 2003, that was when Goblin Char Vulture was released, and in 2004, September, was when Type 1.5 became Legacy and Burning Wish became legal. Right. But I, the development of the, the Legacy deck that we know now really came about because of Rite of Flame and Simeon Spirit Guide. And obviously Burning Wish was already legal, they had Lion's Eye Diamond, Lotus Petals, Chrome Moxes, everything else was already there. Every, I mean, everything at that point was pretty much in place. We can probably say that the Burning Wish build has been the accepted build for Legacy since Belcher existed in Legacy. Yeah, it's been pretty close. It's certainly the red-green list. There have been a few people who have attempted lists with black using Ritual and, and some of the other tutors available in Legacy, but I, I think the red-green list has really been the, the most popular go-to list in Legacy. Well, and, uh, and it changed when they printed Empty the Warrens, right? Like, that doubled your win conditions. Right. That was in Time Spiral, so that was actually before Simeon Spirit Guide. And it, it actually, it was Simeon Spirit Guide that brought things together because it gave you another zero-drop mana producer for free uh, for free and uncounterable. Right. Because you, you could then go Simeon Spirit Guide into Rite of Flame and then go from there into the rest of the deck. And Rite of Flame is the best ritual in the deck, by far. It, I mean, that's debatable. You have... I mean, Rite of Flame and Tinderwall are equal if you get down to the, um, the beginning. You, you only have one of each. I yeah, think Rite of Flame um, is the best red ritual because it only requires an investment of red. Of one mana, right? right. And, and when you get to the point where you're you're casting um, Rite of Flame for four and playing Belcher off one card, that's yeah, right, insane. Yeah, if you have if you have three Rite of Flames, you you have Belcher because <laughs> yeah. that, that makes seven mana. But, I mean, like I said, it's it's not necessarily that it's the best, it's just, it's it's certainly one that you're, you're playing. You're going to play four of those for sure. I think you can say that it's the best recent ritual. Right. Obviously, like, the old black rituals are better, but we have to consider mm -hmm. that Rite of Flame is the only ritual banned in modern. Right. And the only reason that, that the other black ones aren't is because they're not legal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because right. they would be banned as well. Oh, sure. Right. What you end up with is that Belcher is a very consistent deck because you can finally cut it down to two colors, red and green, and you still have that glass cannon strategy where it's all in and you are pretty fragile. I mean, you, you can ultimately lose to one force of will, but you still have that resilience because you're not banking on being able to make a color for some obscure powerful spell or make multiple colors so that you can play several different spells that 
are all good. You're you're really just making the two spell uh, the two colors, and your only goal is to either empty the warrens for a significant number of goblins or put goblin charmelter into play. What number of empty the warrens are you happy with? I've always been happy with eight. I think Jeff is a little bit higher. And Jeff, you know, you had the obviously you had the best experience with uh, Belcher between the two of us at uh, Columbus Star City Open. When was that in June? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, more important than the number that you want is the number where you stop. Okay, um, you're saying that you want to have cards left over if you have that capability. Yeah, I think that once you hit twelve, you stop. You're not getting anything right. more after 12. And, and 12 was my workhorse number. That's the number that obviously I liked to have. Right. Because that ensures well, kill in two turns even if they drop a dude. Right. Well, it ensures kill in two turns even if they have lightning bolt or swords to plowshares or something like that. Sure. Or they, anything that they do that only removes one guy at a time is going to get you through. Right. Now, obviously, I think that the big difference between your list and other legacy lists is... You were playing all of the cantrips. You had four Gataxian Probe. Did you have the four Street Wraith? I had, yeah, I had four Street Wraith, and I also had the fourth Manamorphose, which your original list had four Lion's Eye Diamond. I only had three with me, so I was playing the fourth Manamorphose, and honestly, I found that was really good. Yeah, playing the deck since then, I have cut the Lion's Eye Diamond in favor of the fourth Manamorphose, simply because the Lion's Eye Diamond is really only good with Goblin Charbelcher. Obviously, it's really good because once you have Goblin Charbelcher in play, it fires Goblin Charbelcher for no additional mana. But since you don't have Burning Wish, it's not like you're going to accelerate through Burning Wish and use Lion's Eye Diamond to play whatever you get off of that. Yeah, I generally feel like... If you get Belcher in play, you essentially have pretty good inevitability on the board. They could right. draw a one-of out, it's possible, but you're in pretty right. good shape, and you have a really high consistency in drawing the mana that you need to fire that in successive turns. Right. And generally, you'll have one or two mana in play. Essentially, you'll either have a, a Taiga that you played Land Grant for, or a Chrome Mox, something along those lines. Right, and, and there's nothing better than making opposing players sweat when you have two permanent mana on the board and a Belcher, and they're waiting to see if you draw and kill them. That's fine. Right. And, you know, I think the, 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 the cantrip thing is still the, the most interesting part of your deck. And that, you know, we did a lot of development on that before you played it, and, and found that the cantrips actually made for a faster goldfish. The list was developed mostly by Matt Hazard, who came in a tragic second at a Gen Con Legacy Championship with Belcher, because in his finals match, he managed to hit the lone taiga on the belch and then lost the game as a result. But what he was finding is that the extra cantrips actually do make a difference in how frequently you're going to see your win conditions. Obviously, the goal in Legacy Belcher is to find either you have four Goblin Char Belchers and four Empty the Warrens that you want to find. Some lists will play four Goblin Char Belcher, three Empty the Warrens, and four Burning Wish. So it's a difference between having eight win conditions and 11, and then how many cantrips you play. And what Hazard found was that the Burning Wish list, without the extra cantrips, the only cantrip it was playing was Gataxian Probe, which gives you the benefit of looking at your opponent's hand and figuring out how to play around their hate. That list, which has the 11 win conditions and four Gataxian Probes, was winning 77% of its goldfishes. So that's obviously discounting all of your opponent's abilities, drawing seven cards, and seeing how well you could go. And, that, um, and that's strictly turn one wins, so he emptied for a significant number of goblins or 
had Belcher on the board, did he have to fire the Belcher for that to be a turn one win? I think he's looking at turn one, two, or three Belcher activation, which is a little bit long, but that's I think that's fine, as long as you're comparing him the same for, for both lists. I think it essentially is the same. Sure. He was looking for either significant goblins or turn one, two, or three Belcher activation. That's Belcher playing Belcher on turn one and then having activation later. So, to reiterate, he had the 11 win conditions, four Gataxian probes, he was getting 77% goldfish. And then when we changed it to the eight win conditions, that's just Goblin Char Belcher, just Empty the Warrens, and then the, at that time we were playing 11 cantrips. We were playing four Gataxian probe, three Street Wraith, and four Manamorphose. That pushed our goldfish rate up to 84%. Which is significant. I mean, you're looking at a an extra seven percent goldfish rate there. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty big. Yeah. That was what we found. That was what we went with. The idea was that if you're going to be the fastest deck in the format, you should always press that advantage. Just always be the fastest deck and make your opponent find force of will or his other free answer or lose the game. I mean, that's that's what you need to put your opponent on. I think that additionally, you gain an advantage by not playing Burning Wish against Blue, because as soon as you play Burning Wish, they know what's going on. A lot of the wins that I had against people at Star City were were games where I sort of snuck into the Empty the Warrens, and they suddenly had a handful of counters that didn't do much. I actually had a guy who I played Empty the Warrens with, I think, Five Storm, and he countered three copies of Empty the Warrens because he had been sandbagging his counters, hoping for the big target. <laughs> right. Yeah, Burning Wish is a bottleneck. Yeah. Um, and we we found that again and again when we were testing. It, it's just the two big bottlenecks, well, I guess the three big bottlenecks when it comes to Belcher are going to be the Char Belcher itself, no one's going to let that resolve if they can help it. Burning Wish, no one's going to let that resolve if they can help it. And Seething Song. Seething Song is just a big, juicy ritual that they're going to counter every time if they have that ability. Letting that resolve is just is silly. <laughs> yeah, and we've cut that entirely. The justification that I use is that uh, it produces 5 mana, which is the wrong number for most things you want to do in the deck. Your biggest spells that you're building to cost 4. Yeah, the thing with burning with, or, uh, sorry, Seething Song is that you need to have 2 of them, because... Chaining two of them makes you seven mana, which lets you play Belcher and fire it right away. Mm-hmm. You know, and having five mana, you can play Belcher and play around Daze, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, it's not... I don't know why they don't just Daze the Seething Song. That's pretty much how that goes. And, you know, that said, you know, we're still looking at Belcher decks that are putting up sort of semi-consistent numbers where they, they win with the Burning Wish. And I think Burning Wish is still the accepted build. I don't think that we're trying to suggest that it's bad. I think that we're right. just trying to suggest that there are alternatives. Both builds are good and can win. We're down to sort of right. like small fine-tuning numbers now as far as which one right. edges the other one out. Well, you know, I, actually, I think that the big thing that comes down to it is the sideboard. And I feel like if you're, if you're playing Burning Wish, you're playing a Burning Wish sideboard. And that's somewhat of a security blanket because you can look at those... You look at all those cards that you can get out of your sideboard, including your fourth Empty the Warrens as a win condition, and, you know, you have that ability to say, all right, I have an out to this problem. I mean, I can go get my hull breach and blow up that Pithing Needle or that Leyline of Sanctity, whatever. 
you know, you have that ability to say, I'm not out of this game yet. Yeah. Whereas in your list, especially where you weren't playing a sideboard at all, once they play a pithing needle, Belcher is shut off for you. Yeah, and one, <laughs> you're of, the things, be, you're one of the things that I found at Star City was that I was extremely fortunate that every time my opponent had an answer, it was the wrong answer to what I was building to. So they would play right. Leyline of Sanctity, and I had Empty the Warrens. They would have right. Engineered Explosives, I'd have Belcher. Right. And that's not uncommon, because, I mean, you, you they have a 50% chance of picking which one you have. They might still be playing something that's too slow or too ineffective. I mean, I've played Belcher through things like Aether Sworn Canonist, where that doesn't stop my artifacts. I still get to play all of my Lotus Petals and Goblin Char Belcher. Some people continue bringing in Crosan Grips, <laughs> which costs three! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, no good. But it has a split second. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so that's... That's fine. You know, there there are things that just aren't that effective. And I've, I've played against plenty of, of Maverick players who've had Gaddick Teague in their hand, and they're like, oh, if I just had one more turn. And it's like, yes, of course, if you just had one more turn. So while, while we're talking about the sideboard, I know earlier today we talked about, you know, the, the no sideboard islands or the no sideboard atog versus, like, a sideboard. So, like, if you guys were to play Legacy Belcher tomorrow, how do you feel about the sideboard versus no sideboard? I think that, obviously, the 15 Island sideboard is a class move. <laughs> it's funny, and it's fun. If I were to, to play the deck and say, I want to win with Belcher tomorrow, and I want to have the best chance possible, then I would play a real sideboard, specifically because, and this is what hurt me at, at the Star City event, is that in top eight, your deck list is revealed to your opponent. And you can either use that to your advantage, or you can sacrifice that advantage. And with the 15th Island sideboard, you're definitely sacrificing that advantage. My first move would be I would fill my board up with dudes and make it a transformational sideboard. Because mm -hmm. I think that if they know that you have a sideboard full of, of like Tarmogoyves and Vexing Devils and stuff like that, they have to consider that, and they have to be prepared for that. And I'm not sure that I would use it. I mean, it would be nice to have the option. I don't think I would use it. Because we've already proved with the 15 Island sideboard that we don't want to actually use this this deck. Um, so basically, you're you're not really looking to shore up any matchups. You're kind of just looking to, the, to add another layer. The only the only thing I would do if I wanted to shore up matchups, we've identified that since we're not running Burning Wish, that Lion's Eye Diamond is the weakest card in the deck because it only fires Belcher. I like Lion's Eye Diamond for firing Belcher but I don't feel like it's a very strong card. So I would probably start my sideboard with 3x Xanted Swarm and 3x Seething Song. I like Seething Song better for generating mana against decks that don't play blue. We've already talked about the fact that it's a bottleneck and it sucks when it gets countered, which is why I don't include it in the main deck because I don't want to play it against blue. At the same time, if I am playing against blue, I want those Xanted Swarms because those are a must-counter bomb that I can just drop and, and ride to victory. Um, yeah, that's how, you get, that's how you get card advantage in Belcher is by playing Xanted Swarm against a blue deck yeah. because that shuts yeah. off all of their blue cards. Yeah, so they're discarding them for, for, for a turn, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and beyond that, I don't think that there are any other cards that I would want to play because I think that the main deck is just that good and that streamlined. Right. That was the big thing, was that when we put the deck together, 
there's not a lot to actually cut out of the deck that makes it better. Like you're you're already the fastest deck in the format by far. Anything you change in that just slows you down. I, which is which is the you know the whole fifteen island sideboard, right? And and I think the right. fifteen island is a lot of like, okay, you know, this is a this is I think the exact sixty that I want. And I don't want to tent myself thinking I can make it better in games two or three, so right. I can put basic islands in my sideboard. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I was specifically, and this is important, um, sideboarding badly. So I was picking cards out of my <laughs> sideboard and putting them into my deck because I want my opponent to think that I'm bringing in cards against me. Because if he sideboards to fight my, my pretend sideboard cards, I've gotten him to add dead cards to his deck that just muddy up his ability to win. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite favorite part about that whole sideboard plan. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of fun. You can pretty much do whatever you want, and all you have to do is watch your opponent and look at them and <laughs> look at different cards, pull them out in different numbers, put them on the table in front of you, pick them up and put them back. I mean, you, you have so <laughs> many options, and it's just all of your stress is gone, and you can just watch them wonder what's going on. And I think that, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to put in cards to shore up the blue matchup. I feel right. okay bringing in Xantid Swarm for Lion's Eye Diamond, because I don't feel that Lion's Eye Diamond is very strong. I'm not worried about losing that card. If you're taking out other good cards for things like Pyroblasts and stuff like that, that's a card that it's meant to stop a blue counterspell, but if you can just draw out that counterspell, like if I take out Desperate Ritual and put in four Pyroblasts, the Desperate Ritual serves the same purpose if I can just make my opponent counter it. So if I can figure out how to draw his counters properly, I'm achieving the same function that Pyroblast would have. Yeah, and actually the only the only matchup that you really need to shore up is the blue matchup. Oh, totally. Everything else, it's just like, everything I'm either going to kill him or my deck's going to screw me and I'm going to lose. Right. Yeah, the, everything else you either beat or they play Layla of Sanctity and you had Belcher in hand. I mean, that's pretty much how it goes. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess they could have engineered explosives and you have empty warrant. But, I mean, that's what it takes, is that they have to have the right hate for your threat. And they have to have it immediately, and they have to have enough mana to play it. I don't. I mean, like, there were a lot of, of Maverick players who were like, it, you killed me. I had turn two Thalia, and it's like, I had turn one, you're dead. Yeah. And I think um, this is a good transition, because in Legacy, there's only a certain portion of the metagame that's blue. But when we move over and start talking about vintage... Well, wait, because I'd, I'd still like to give credit. Okay. Actually, part of this discussion came because Ryan Guess got fifth place at a Star City Games Legacy Open, uh, the one in New Orleans, I guess a week ago, playing Burning Wish Belcher. And, you know, it, he had the typical Burning Wish build. You know, everything everything seems to go... Or it seems to have gone well for him. He had the win, and I, I mean, I just always like to recognize Belcher players when they get the win. I think it's impressive to build a deck and fight through hate that, you know, you really don't have all that many ways to fight through it, despite having Burning Wish and having the, the ability to go get some answers. And, you know, I don't I don't actually think Burning Wish allows you all that much room to play around there. But, but he did well, so props to you, Brian Guess. And the commentators love it, right? I mean, they're, they're tired right. of watching the grindy matches all day long, so... Right. You do it for the commentators. Yeah, Belcher's exciting. It really I mean, is. There, there's lots of stuff that goes on in a Belcher in a Belcher matchup, win or lose. Like it's over in a flash.
you know, I think once it comes down to the difference between legacy and vintage, I think the big thing is that if you're looking at the proportion of blue decks, legacy is usually around half, and some of those decks may or may not be playing all four Force of Wills. You may have different setups of counters. Vintage, the number of blue decks is probably around 60 to 70 percent so you are far more likely to run into a force of will in vintage than you are in legacy and just about every deck that plays blue in vintage is playing four force of will because it's vintage yeah probably every deck that plays a significant amount of blue is going to be supporting force of will there's there's a lot more brokenness in vintage right like i mean and that's that's the reason that force of will exists right well, that's actually part of it, too, is that there's enough brokenness in Vintage that if you have Empty the Warrens, you might not always win. You could right. you could Empty the Warrens for 12 tokens, which, you know, in Legacy is a pretty sure bet to get there. And in Vintage, they could open Lotus, Talarian, Mox Sapphire, Time Vault, Voltaic, and you lose. Yeah, totally. Legacy sees, like, very fringe amounts of cluster storms, like only high tide. But I know the card's pretty good in Vintage, which, I mean, that can kind of totally derail your Empty the Warrens plan, right? Yeah, and the other thing is that Mental Misstep is legal in Vintage and not in Legacy. I played, or I tested some Belcher when Mental Misstep was legal in Legacy, and it wasn't going to go anywhere. (laughs) It was nearly impossible to to get out of of turn one against any deck playing. Especially um, considering that... For the the time that it was legal in Legacy, it was omnipresent in Legacy. It was ruining Legacy, which is why it had to be banned. The big problem with Mental Misstep is that instead of Force of Will, where it's a two-for-one trade, Mental Misstep is a one-for-one trade, which is devastating when it comes down. Well, I mean, at that point, you know, they they could be mental misstepping you when you're two cards invested, right? You've uh, Gitaxium probed and metamorphosed into Rite of Flame, and, you know, they misstep your Rite of Flame, and you're like, okay. The problem is that with mental misstep, they can have multiple counters pretty easily. Like, if they have mental misstep, a Force of Will, and a blue card, they have two counters, two hard counters for whatever you have in your hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess guess when you probe, you see their misstep, but... You could choose to play into it or not. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you you really don't have a lot of options because you're going. I mean, you got to get rid of it. Of, yeah. You have a lot of one drop spells in that deck, so you're probably going to have to deal with it at some point. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, in vintage, you're getting a lot of good starter mana, and that's one of the things that that Legacy Belcher can feel kind of short of sometimes. In order to really start going places. You need the two mana in order to cast Desperate Ritual and Pyretic Ritual in order to make it there. And sometimes getting to, to two can, can be can be difficult. I think right. I think like uh and you get the um not power accelerants as well. So you get mana crypt, mana vault, soul ring. Yeah, which are bonkers. Yeah. Uh mana crypt right. and soul ring and mana vaults are insane. Right. Actually, one of the bigger differences is that more of your mana in Vintage is permanent mana. Yeah. Um, a lot of your legacy mana, like things like uh, Lotus Petal uh, and your Spirit Guides, they're all going to go away. <laughs> your permanent mana is really limited to just Chrome Mox and Taiga, if you get it with Land Grant. And then in Vintage, you have five Moxes. You can play four Chrome Moxes. You can play some number of Mox Opals. You have Soul Ring. You have Mana Crypt. Mana Crypt is probably the second best mana source in that deck. 
after Black Lotus. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Sure. Simply because it stays in play and makes you two mana every turn. And in Belcher, and you're totally not worrying about taking a lightning bolt every other turn. No, no, you're not. You know, the other thing is that once you get to play those permanent mana sources, since you have all the moxes and can play things like Mox Opal, you actually have better support for three, four, and five color mana bases. After testing for a while with my red-green list, I added Time Twister and Tinker because could play them off of Manamorphose and Mox Sapphire. They were never hard to cast because I, I just had that ability. And, you know, the actually, the other thing, uh, one other thing to point out is that Vintage also has better tutors. And I think the, the two big ones that you need to be concerned about, or actually three big ones, are Tinker, which goes to get Belcher for three mana instead of four, Demonic Tutor, and Demonic Consultation. There are some people who think that Demonic Consultation can be unrestricted, but <laughs> but but no, it's it's very good in in Belcher, and uh, you know I think we're seeing some uh, some more use of it in Stephen Menendian's Burning Long list as well. I, I think it's a really good card. It's instant speed, one black mana, go get whatever card you need. So direct to hand, right? At instant speed, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. The demonic consultation is insane. It really is. I think that another card which might get forgotten in the trip to Vintage from Legacy is Channel. Yeah, actually, I see a lot of people who want to cut Channel as well. I think they have trouble getting to that two green mana to be able to play it. But it's so good once you play it, because you can... Well, first of all, it's a great bait spell, sort of like Seething Song in the sense that if it gets countered, you might be sort of sunk, but if it resolves, you can do whatever you want. If you have multiple Belchers in hand, like if they let channel resolve, and then you have two belchers in hand, you still win because they'll counter one and then you hit them with the other. It's also really good with things like Memory Jar, which also isn't in Legacy, because you can play channel into Memory Jar, use Memory Jar, and still have the channel ability available to you. Another, another I think, huge difference between uh, the Vintage Belcher list and the Legacy Belcher list is Goblin Welder. I mean, Welder is legal in Legacy, but Mishra's Workshop is not, so it doesn't really have the, right. the application against your opponent as well. And also, I mean, if you get to the long game and you're memory jarring multiple times in a turn, like, right. you've already won. Yeah, I, I've played Welder in a lot of my vintage lists, and, you know, it's it's very good against counter spells for one, because since you have all this permanent mana in the form of Moxes, if your Belcher gets countered and you resolve Goblin Welder, you just weld in your Belcher for one of your Moxes, and you're back in the game. It also helps you against, as you mentioned, workshop decks, because you know, you'll get into situations where you can weld out one of their pieces of hate for something a little less relevant and suddenly be able to play through it. I love Welder and Vintage, and I've played it in Legacy a few times. There's a lot of times where it just it's not quite good enough, either because it gets killed or is a little bit too slow. Well, your best usage in Legacy is a lot more narrow. So basically, right. best usage in Legacy is you're negating one counter spell. Yeah. You're not, you're not welding out a, a lodestone golem for a black lotus, right? Right, right. And the format in general is way more prepared to deal with creatures. Yeah, I, I think that when I've played Welder in Legacy, it's for the most part been a sideboard card. Although I have caught some people off guard with it main deck before. The reason we bring this up, the vintage Belcher list, is because one of our friends and Team Serious teammates, Randall Witherell, played Belcher at the recent Team Serious Open, which was two weeks ago on October 22nd. I think his list is good, and I think he has some interesting choices. And I think that actually what it comes down to is that his list was perfect for that metagame. 
one thing that I'm often guilty of is that I forget that the Columbus metagame is really just a slightly tweaked version of the Cleveland metagame, which means that the, the big decks that show up are going to be workshop decks, and Randall's Belcher deck destroys workshop decks because it will win on the play. That was the big key. It was a great metagame choice, even if the, the deck itself wasn't perfect. So I mean, what, what do you think are the, the big things that you would have necessarily played? Because, I mean, if, if you're listening to this, you can look at the, the list that's attached to the article. Right. I think always my first question is whether you need the lands vintage. Um, so by lands, you mean... So specifically, the, the bayou is, is the elephant in the room, right? Like, the taiga still has some uses, you know? It's okay. I, I mean, frankly, I don't know that you need any lands in Vintage. My first thought would be, can I cut the four land grants, the Taiga, and the Bayou? What do I do with those six slots? Can I make the deck better? My first thought would be to put in two Chrome Mox and four Mox Opals and, you know, see where that gets me. Yeah, I'm really surprised yeah, that I he's not playing any Mox Opal. I just realized that. Yeah, he's, he doesn't have any Mox Opals. He's also, he's also not playing the Demonic Consultation, which is... Definitely a card that I would play in Vintage Culture. Yeah, I agree. Um, and do you think three Goblin Welders is enough? You don't want to play out of them? I think that's fine. You know, and I, I think the other the other bomb spells that he's playing are all good. He's got uh, he's got Wheel, he's got Bargain, Necro, Jar. All of those are great. I know in the list that I've played, I also haven't had Empty the War in the main deck. The interesting thing to know, I didn't realize this until this afternoon actually, was that he has Burning Wish main deck. I guess he's making full use of the uh, unrestricted Burning Witch. Do you think that you can, like, because I know he plays Dark Rituals, so do you think you can consistently hit the black mana to cast your Rituals without the land grant for the Bayou? Well, that that would be part of the question. I, and that's why I would try and put in the Mox Opals, because I think the Mox Opals would be supported in that list pretty well. Like, once you get to the Moxes, especially alongside for Chrome Mox, and he also has four Manamorphos, four Street Wraith, and four Gitaxian probes to help dig into some of these. I think you can get black without too much trouble. And the, yeah, I mean, the Manamorphos helps to pick up any color you need, sure. because all you need is a red or a green to right. get in there. Right. This is actually pretty similar to a list that I have played before, except that it has the lands and the uh, burning which is in it. So, I, I, you know, I really don't have a problem with any of the, the way the mana base itself is constructed, other than, you know, whether you want the, the danger of having lands left in the deck when you fire Charbelcher. I think I asked him if he if he missed during the tournament, and he did not whiff once. Yeah. I've explained before that the chances of missing are fairly slim with only one land in the deck. So assuming that you're going to land grant or naturally draw one of your lands, the back of the envelope math on this is that once you get past your first opening hand, you have around 50 cards left in your deck. And with a taiga, the taiga can't be in the top 10 of those. So anywhere in the bottom four out of five cards in your deck, it's fine. Like you have 80% chance of winning. And with Bayou, one of those left in the deck, it can't be anywhere in the top 20, which leaves two-thirds of your deck left. So it's 60% chance. And that's that's about what it is. And yet, um, it's incredible how you can predict when you're going to hit the land, because it's going to happen when it's most relevant. So for Hazard, yeah. it happened Eddie. in the finals <laughs> of the Legacy Championship. In this past Legacy Championship, I was in Game 3 against Maverick, which should be an auto-win. And I had, it had been a hard fight in game three because I didn't have a very good hand, but I finally got the Belcher down and I was firing it. I was going to die next turn and I'm like, I'm picking up my deck to start revealing and I'm like, this is when it happens. And the sixth card was Taiga and I lost. 
Yeah, I mean, it does happen, and it's always crushing when it does, because it's just like, oh... It's one of those things that you accept, though. It's sort of like demonic consultation for a restricted card. You play that card because it is so good at what it does, and you accept the right. fact that you're playing with fire, and sometimes it's going to blow up. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fine playing against Tuan, right? Because he's already flipped Blake Steel Colossus to Dark Confidant, <laughs> so you can still win with the Tuan right? Right. So right. true. <laughs> like I said, the big thing with Randall's list is that it was a great metagame choice. And part of that was because he knew he was going to be playing against a lot of workshop decks and probably some aggro decks that were not playing blue. I like to just um, hit, hit this a little bit because we talked about this briefly beforehand, but uh, I think there's a general perception out there that combo decks are bad against shops, so I'd like you just to talk a little bit about why Belcher does do well against shops. Belcher is a great deck against shops because shops don't play counterspells. So anytime you're on the play against a shop deck, you have free reign to do whatever you can do. And a lot of times that's resolving Char Belcher, you might put 12 or 14 goblins into play, and, it, and it's great because they don't move fast enough to be able to re react to that. You know, they won't necessarily have Ratchet Bomb to blow up your Empty the Warrens tokens or your Moxes so that you can fire Belcher. They won't necessarily have Revoker to play against Belcher, although if they know what they're doing, they'll be trying to mulligan into that. But part of what I've run into playing Belcher is that a lot of Workshop players have and they're either overconfident against Belcher, thinking that all they have to do is resolve one's fear of resistance and they've won the game, or they're totally afraid of Belcher. And my experience against them is that they should be more afraid than they should be confident. Like I said, the, the big difference is that they don't have counterspells, so anything, anytime you're on the play is like a free win most of the time. And even if they drop like a sphere on turn one... Right. Especially in lists with all eight spirit guides, it's very easy to play around a spear. Most of the time you can play your spirit guide, put a mox into play, use that to put another mox into play, use that to put another mox or even something bigger like a, a lotus or mana crypt into play, and you're already playing around their spheres. They also have the drawback that something like Lodestone Golem doesn't even affect your moxes, so they may have Lodestone Golem and think that they're sitting pretty, but they really don't slow you down at all, since all you have to do is play mana and then play another artifact, Goblin Charbelcher. Sort of the same thing with Thorn of Amethyst, since you can play Tinderwall through it. And it's sort of the same thing with Chalice of the Void, because there's always the chance that if they play it on for zero, that you'll have a Spirit Guide into a Tinderwall or a Rite of Flame, or if they play it on one, that you'll have a bunch of Moxes and still be able to play all your mana. It's not necessarily a great matchup for them, even on the draw, or even on the play for them. Makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you're playing Belcher, you're really in trouble when you get to the point of hard-casting your spirit guides, right? Is that yeah. when you use a game? Have you, have you won any games that way? I've won games with Beats before. <laughs> it's really pretty few and far between. It usually it does get down to the point where you're like, well, I'm not going to be doing anything else relevant, so spirit guide, go. <laughs> and then hopefully you have another spirit guide to play next turn. I think the one game that I can remember winning off of those is that I had played Belcher and knocked my... Right, I had played Belcher, hit a land, and put my opponent at one or two and before he blew up my Char Belcher. So I resolved Wild Cantor, which I was playing at the time. 
It's a one-drop red, uh, red-green hybrid creature, and it's a one-one. <laughs> and and I think I attacked him a couple times with that to to actually finish him off. That's way more impressive than Spirit. That's true. I I guess so. <laughs> so that was. I mean, it does happen. And actually, we talked a little bit too about the uh, the Tinder Wall second ability that most people forget about. That actually comes up every once in a while. Tinderwall's a great blocker, though. Yeah, if, it is, yeah. if anyone's forgetting, you can, uh, I believe it's pay one red and sacrifice the Tinderwall to deal two damage yeah. to a creature that it's blocking. Correct. Yeah, people forget about that. Oh. And I, I'm pretty sure I killed the meddling mage with that at the, the Legacy, the Star City Legacy, cha- uh, Legacy Open. So, so did you kill the meddling mage and then go on to win with what the meddling mage was named? Yeah, I totally did. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I don't remember if I've ever had that happen because I, I think most most players I played against were aware of it or they weren't attacking with anything especially relevant. I mean, Tinderwall blowing up a, a meddling mage is one thing, but Tinderwall blowing up Dark Confidant isn't necessarily the greatest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, I, I think that Belcher is going to be a difficult deck to play in any environment, but if you realize that you're going to be playing against a lot of workshop decks or... Non-blue yeah, decks... Yeah, actually, you know, with the, you know, Randall's playing main deck Goblin Welders, Goblin Welders pretty good against a blue deck in, in Vintage. A lot of the decks tend to play fewer overall counters because a lot of them only have Force of Will and maybe one or two Fluster Storms, one or two Mental Missteps. They don't necessarily play four ofs of multiple counters. Mm-hmm. So Belcher is similar to Burning Long in the sense that it will just try and drop really big threatening cards every turn and if it sneaks one through you're probably dead Modern Grand Prix coming up in Chicago. I think the only one of us going is going to be Josh Chapel. And since we're now at the serious food and drink part of the podcast, what are you going to eat, Josh Chapel? Uh, well, basically, I, I'm going to eat whatever Jason Jaco and Jerry Yang have planned. Okay. But I'm sure some of the places that we might hit up. So um, there's like a Korean chicken place. Uh, it's kind of downtown. It's on 2940 North Broadway. They have some pretty sweet fried chicken. And so it's I don't know the Korean fried chicken. What? Yeah, they they also have. Uh, let's see. What what's Korean, the name of that place? Crisp. Crisp. So Korean fried chicken. First thing on the menu, plain Jane for the purists who likes their fried chicken without any sauces. So I think that'd be right up your alley, Jeff. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> for the person that likes plain hamburgers. Yeah, I mean, and I regularly do eat my fried chicken without any sauces, so sounds great. Yeah, and I know last time a bunch of us went and we got a bunch of different kinds and kind of shared around, which was pretty fun. I think another place that's pretty good is there's a New Lawn Bakery in Chicago. I think there are a couple of them. Uh, they have a lot of different banh mi sandwiches that are that's all... A, that's extreme. a Vietnamese place, right? So it's N-H-U-L-A-N? Correct. Okay. And, uh, I mean, their sandwiches are really cheap. Let's see, there's no sandwich over $4.25 on the menu. Boom. And this is a <laughs> yeah. this is a Jerry Yang-approved banh mi restaurant. He's very serious about his banh mi, so I'm guessing that they use the appropriate bread 
and and the right meats and stuff like that, yes? Yep, correct. Yeah, I mean, they... Yeah, what's, what's a typical banh mi? So you're going to have cilantro, jalapenos, some pickled vegetables, probably some sort of like pork and pate, and then like a French bread. Yeah, the bread specifically, since I mentioned it, it's a, a rice baguette. So um, the the interior of the bread is very is very soft, but the uh, the the crust of the bread is is very very thin. It's uh, it's like like rice paper. And I mean, and you really can't beat a sandwich for like three dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> I would just, just make sure to guard your sandwich. Totally. I think the. Uh, isn't the, isn't the crust of the bread French bread? So it's not thin crust. It's not like rice paper. It's like French bread. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of it's, like it's a, got some, some chew to it. I mean, it has a lot to do with colonization, right? It's kind of a right. Oh yeah. It's it's uh. It was when Vietnam was French Indochina. Now I'm really worried that I've messed this up, and Jerry's gonna come to my house and just beat me up. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to give you an out, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> So so anyway, that's that's actually it. They have the French bread and the pate, which obviously, I mean, those are French ingredients. Right. The, the pate the, is, is huge. Yeah. Right. And the rest of that is. Yeah, I mean, I guess easy. I guess you could use um, pig's brains. I ate some pig's brains yesterday. Kind of tasted like pate. Huh. I cooked a whole really? pig head. So you oh. cooked it yourself? Uh, yes. How was the experience? Uh, it was interesting. The eyeball was interesting. The brains were interesting. The tongue. It was all right. Did you end up using everything, the skin included and all that stuff? No, I didn't eat any of the skin. Oh, okay. Did you make a shirt out of it or anything? <laughs> I have a mask. I'm going to wear it on the airplane. Oh, that seems really good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I know, Nat, you were talking about uh, pizza in Chicago. I heard they're known for that. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, unfortunately not going to Chicago. I'm not going to make it this time. But you know, one place that I've always enjoyed going when we go to Chicago is Giordano's. They're famous for their Chicago deep dish pizza pretty sure it's a chain in Chicago, so they have several different locations. Their pizza is really more of a pie in the sense of actual pie, as in there's a, a crust around the outside, or a crust around the edges and the bottom, and then the inside is just filled with toppings. So it's got several pounds of cheese and meat and, um, you know, vegetables, wherever you want. And, you know, you pick up a slice of the pizza, or if you are fortunate enough to be able to take one home with you, it's a significant weight. Like you're you're talking three or four pounds of pizza. It seems like, and they actually. Um, I know last time I was in Chicago, not only did I eat there, but I was able to have a pizza wrapped up to take home with me. And it heats up very well. You put it in the oven. They also overnight their pizzas. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they will. They will ship you a pizza, and they're all fantastic. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We have we have a whole big thread about where to eat in Chicago because you know, it, just as serious as we are about playing magic, we're probably like maybe a little bit more serious about eating and drinking, right? We're infinitely more serious about eating. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. That about wraps it up for this time. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chapel. And I hope you'll join us next time for more serious vintage. Take a little trip, take a little trip, take a little trip and see.